Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... From the Mouth of the Monster. The whole city is talking about this monster, Joel Rifkin, and I am dating a Joel Rifkin. But you like your Joel Rifkin. Yeah. I just, I just wish he had a different name. Your boyfriend is a normal guy. He just happens to have the same name as one of the worst serial killers in the history of New York. Uh. For many of us, that vintage bit from Seinfeld is all we know of Joel David Rifkin, who between 1989 and 1993 terrorized New York City and its environs. Rifkin was sentenced to 203 years in prison for the murders of nine women during that time, though he is believed to have killed up to 17 victims in all. Former heavyweight boxer and decorated NYPD cop Robert Maladnich joins me today to discuss serial killer Joel Rifkin, whom he first met when they were college students together. Welcome, Robert, to Murder Most Foul. Good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. You're very welcome. So let's start a little bit with your background, Robert. Um, you uh, you do, as I say, you have an interesting connection. You'll you will roll that out as you wish. Uh, uh, a knowledge of of the individual Joel Rifkin, and um, later again interviewed him for the book. And we'll talk about a little bit about uh, you know the logistics of that, which were fascinating about going around to the prison and how you connected with him after the murder. And you're going to tell us how you connected with him before the murder right now. And you tell us a little bit about your, your, your bio. Let's hear your bio. Well, back in 1979, I was a, uh, I was finishing up my, my journalism studies at the state university of Brockport in upstate New York. And I met this man who owned a boxing magazine called, um, his name was Hank Kaplan. The magazine was called Hank, Hank Kaplan's Boxing Digest. And he offered me my very first paid assignment. Uh, he wanted me to go to um, Rochester, New York, which was about 30 miles from Brockport, cover a boxing match with a local, a local favorite by the name of Rocky Fratto, and then write a, I think it was a 750-word uh, story. You know, you got to remember this is back in 79, so there were no instant cameras. You couldn't take pictures with your phone. And he wanted two or three photographs to go with the uh, story. And I told him that I knew how to take pictures, that I had a camera. Um, the minute I told him that, I regretted it because I didn't have a camera. I wasn't really technically proficient with one, if, even if I had my hands on one. So I got into a little bit of a panic and I thought I was going to sabotage my my very first paid assignment, which, you know, for a college senior is kind of a big deal. And um, I went to the journalism department, which I knew everybody there, and I asked for if they could recommend somebody to join me 
from the photography club. They, the Brockport had a fantastic photography club. And um, they wound up introducing me to this rumpled, kind of disheveled underclassman. I think he was a sophomore. He was a couple of years younger than me. It was Joel Rifkin. And we wound up going to the fights together. Um, he took some fantastic action photos of the fight. But what made this event particularly memorable was the fact that the in the main event, the local hero got the victory, even though he deserved to lose. And boxing fans being as, as fair and just as they are, they went berserk. And there was an absolute all-out riot within the arena. The state troopers had to come. Uh, there, were there were chairs flying through the air. Um, and Joel, throughout this whole ordeal, very dangerous ordeal, he... He got, first he went under the ring. You know, we, we both went under there just for, well, no, we, we actually went to the floor, not under the ring. But we were just, it was self-preservation. And then we, I think we both realized, it kind of clicked on us, that here we were journalism students. And we were in the midst of something that was really newsworthy. And we really should be out there, you know, uh, sucking this up and really taking advantage of it. So what I remember most, as I was dodging flying projectiles, was Joel was sort of had his head down and his camera up in the air. It was almost like a, like kind of like a, the images you see of wartime photographers. And he wound up, you know, firing away. He fired, uh, you know, many rolls of film, which a lot of young people don't even realize what a roll of film is. But what was even more exciting to us was the fact that there were two daily newspapers in Rochester. And after we left the arena, with our, you know, physically safe and okay. We went to the two daily newspapers, like one, two, three in the morning. They developed the film for us. They were all excited about the pictures. And it was just, you know, such a formative experience for two, you know, young aspiring journalists. So um, I still look back on that as one of my favorite, um, my favorite experiences, you know, because it's the first. And, um, and it was, it turned out to be, you know, so much more than we ever could have imagined. What, what made Joel um, memorable to me more than anything, uh, besides the fact that he was a tremendous photographer, that was very evident early on. He displayed a lot of courage uh, in the arena. But on the way home that night, I remember him saying that one of the things he had been thinking about was learning how to parachute because he wanted to start a photography business. And one of the um, services that he thought he could um, provide would be to photograph people getting married in the air while they're parachuting. So obviously, you know, he was somebody that was kind of awkward and kind of rumpled and disheveled. Later learned he had disheveled, he was, uh, had dyslexia, but he was very intelligent and he was also very creative um, because that's something I did, you know, other aspiring journalists that I met uh, during my four years, during my, I actually went there for three years. Um, they weren't as they didn't have such creative ideas. And Joel seemed like he was very committed 
to providing, you know, some, to creating some type of future for himself. So to be honest, even though, you know, in hindsight, he failed to launch and he had one failure after another when he was out there in the world trying to, to start a career, um, I was actually quite impressed with him. Uh, you know, he was a little socially awkward, you know, I guess in some ways I was too, but I was always attracted to those type of people that are a little bit of an outcast. Um, and if they're nerdy, but intelligent, you know, I found those people really interesting. And I found him very interesting. And once I left school, you know, shortly thereafter that incident, you know, for, uh, I think five months afterwards, I always thought about Joel and I had, I always had the impression that he was doing really well. And he was, I knew he had dropped out of school, but I always kind of assumed he was working for a magazine and was making uh, a, a very nice career out of his, um, out of his uh, ability to take good photographs. Boy, now, was I wrong, but I, that's what I thought. In spades, but now <clears throat> fast forward, you um, become a policeman actually. Uh, in between school and, and actually writing uh, books like this. So you became a, a, a policeman in New York. Well, Jim, there's actually kind of an interesting connection uh, about me becoming a policeman and, and what I thought Joel was doing. You know, I moved to Manhattan in 1980 when I graduated from, from Brockport. I had done an internship at the New York Times in my last year up there. Um, so that made me feel that I was going to be much more desirable to big city newspapers than I was. I wound up floundering around New York for three years. Couldn't, I, I got a job in a couple of little neighborhood, you know, newspapers that barely, you know, maybe paid a penny a word. And I joined the police department in January, 1983. And where the Joel connection comes in is you know, I had no great uh, aspirations to be a police officer. I mean, it was, it was a good job. I wish I appreciated it more at the time because of all the fodder that I was able to generate for future, you know, for future books and things. But the reality is the first couple of years, I viewed myself as a sellout. I felt like I didn't pursue my dream to the fullest. I took the civil service safety route and I felt like a failure. And during those years of me feeling like a fa failure, I actually would think of Joel often under the misguided impression that he was out there fulfilling his dream, working for National Geographic or Life magazine. It was just something silly, but it was rooted in my head and it was very real. So once again, you know, we sort of had this connection for that decade between the time we met and the time that he started, you know, killing people at a breakneck pace. Now that and that connection or that uh, uh, feeling about him with no backup information, no, with no friend saying, hey, we saw Joel today, that it was based on your perception and based on what you've done so far. Well, I would say it's, it's accurate that he was talented, creative, fast, fast on his feet as far as, you know, photography or whatnot. There is absolutely even, you know, you don't finish school. So what? You know, I don't know if, uh, you know, Mark Twain went to school, but he so it's, it's perfectly logical that that's what you think his his path would have been. And so, unfortunately, you are feeling bad about yourself a little bit because you didn't go his path. And in essence, he was even more messed up 
because he was failing. He was not, uh, you know, even, even forget photography, he wasn't finding anything that he could latch onto. Um, and so again, and that proceeded into, and we'll talk about too, about that he had quite a failure with women. Uh, he had a couple of girlfriends, but, but, you know, that just, he didn't have the social acumen to, to know what to do in a relationship, uh, certainly not with a woman and probably not with, you know, friends. And so one of his, and we can start with this, I think one of his paths to where he ended up was that he decided the, to, to satisfy his urges we all have, he turned to prostitutes. Yeah, Joel had actually um, turned to prostitution before he came to Brockport. He had gone to a community college in Nassau County on Long Island first. And when he knew he was going away to, to college up to Brockport, which is 400 miles away from New York, from the New York metro area, he felt like everybody would be having sex up there. And he had to garner himself some experience because he had absolutely no experience in that, in that area. He wound up going to Hempstead, Long Island, uh, which is a, one of the few cities that, that are on Long Island. So being a city, it has like a bad neighborhood and a good neighborhood and a sleazy area. And he picked up a prostitute and he said from that moment on, he was hooked mainly because, you know, he had the money, he got to be the boss, he got to make the decision. And not that he was bossy or demanding, he was far too young to be bossy or demanding, but he just liked the fact that he was treated with what he perceived to be a degree of respect, being a customer. And that wound up setting a pattern that uh, unfortunately, you know, he couldn't rid himself of. It metastasized into something, you know, much more nefarious. This uh, comes out again in, in your interviewing of him later, uh, the, the, uh, a lot of the details about even what he personally was thinking about, plus, plus you know, the facts of the murders, was that, you know, he, he estimated maybe 300 prostitutes um, over the period of time. And though he did, uh, we can talk about what is actual and, you know, proven how many that he killed or admitted to or could be proven that he didn't kill them all. So he, he there was obviously a number one, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, the first time. But up to that point, he probably had some hits and misses. And some of the things you have in your book, which I find fascinating, is uh, the whole concept of the underground with prostitution and the, the games they play and that they, you know, how you rip off a John and stuff like that is in the, in the book, the, the Joel Rifkin story. And for us who don't have any, you know, uh, history or experience with this, it's fascinating. And yet he learned over time how not to be taken. And yet at times we'll talk about the issue with his mom's jewelry at times he did get taken. Um, so he's now, you know, uh, before this first murder, he's living, is at that point, uh, I believe he's living in, with, back on, in East Meadow. Yeah, he, never, he never really left his parents' home. So everything he was doing between the time he left Brockport and the time he started killing, which was about 10 years, uh, he had a couple of startup businesses, like a, a gardening business that didn't really work out. He worked part-time in a liquor store. But, you know, pretty much all of his energies, emotional energies, uh, and all of his money was spent satisfying this insatiable sexual, sexual urges. And 
he actually, in 1974, there was an Alfred Hitchcock movie called Frenzy. And in it, there is a very uh, a wealthy kind of suave guy who happens to be a serial killer. And he chokes a woman to death with his necktie. And for whatever reason, long before Joel ever thought about killing anybody, he was very titillated by that scene. Um, so that was in 74 when he would have only been 15 years old. And he carried that fantasy, that image, into every one of his sexual encounters. So when he started you know, visiting these prostitutes and the numbers started to get into the hundreds, he said literally every one of them, he wasn't necessarily thinking of killing them, but in order to enhance his physical pleasure, he was thinking about that image of that woman getting choked by the, with the tie and the terror in her eyes and the suave, cool cunning of the perpetrator. So that's another thing that kind of slowly graduated from just imagining the scene in the movie to imagining doing it to the women that were performing you know, sex, uh, sex acts on him. And then eventually it evolved into him actually uh, killing people himself. There were many instances where he felt that he wasn't treated fairly, he wasn't treated kindly. Uh, sometimes they would rip him off, they would take his money, say, I'll be right back and disappear. Other times they would have sex with him, he would, he would want to have sex again. They would shake him down for more money or they would even have him go buy them drugs. Uh, he, he wasn't a drug user himself, he was never an alcohol abuser either. Um, so he just started to feel used, you know, and, and taken advantage of. <clears throat> and um, there were a lot of other life circumstances that made him feel bad about himself. For example, his father, you know, realizing he was approaching 30 and he was still kind of a failure in his father's eyes. His father paid for him to go to college and said, if you get A's in two classes, I'll pay for you to go back to a, a, a university. Joel did get the A's in two classes, but then his father committed suicide before Joel was able to tell him that he got the two A's. And Joel always, or Joel told me that he felt that his father committed suicide because the father did not think he was going to get two A's and he was going to be another source of disappointment to his father. And that's why he took himself out. He was dying anyway, but he took an overdose of uh, barbiturates. So there was a lot of self-loathing going on during this time. Um, he didn't have a normal relationship with women. He really didn't have any normal relationship with the boys. Um, he couldn't keep a job. So there was incrementally, he just, there was a lot more self-hatred. And finally, one night, uh, he brought a, a woman from Manhattan to his Long Island home while his mother was on vacation. And she was not as responsive as he would have liked. She was dismissive. She was kind of snarky. And he had a object, a hard object, a howitzer shell in his living room that he had bought at a military flea market. And he says he just snapped and he started pounding her with the uh, howitzer shell. He thought she died, but she wound up you know, clinging to life and fighting back and scratching him. And um, he wound up, you know, he was able to uh, take her life eventually. And then like so matter of factly, and this is the part where it gets really eerie. I mean, not that killing somebody is not eerie, but here he just killed a woman in his childhood home, 
where he used to play with his sister. And then he just takes this woman down in the basement, lays out some plastic and starts, you know, chopping her up to put her body parts in different bags so he can put them in different locations. And I said, Joel, I asked him, how do you, how do you um, chop up a body that easily? And he says, he looked at me like I was crazy because he had just taken bi a biology class. Uh, that was one of the classes he got the A in. And he says, an exacto knife. You just cut the sockets and pull out the, uh, pull out the, uh, you know, pop the bones out. And that's when I realized there was something that was not, um, there was a real, prior to that, I, I thought there was a little more of an emotionality about him. But when he described that in, in such uh, graphic detail with absolutely expressionless and emotionless, I realized that there was probably a lot more damage than I could have ever imagined. The first victim, he put the head in a paint can and he dumped it at a, um, at a golf course in New Jersey. And then he threw the other body parts, some in the river, some in the woods. But the, but the head in the paint can was actually found within a week or so. And Joel heard a report about that on the radio while he was out cruising for other, other women. And he did go into a panic after that. And he... Um, he actually did not kill another one, another woman for about a year. Um, and just uh, as a, just as a, something kind of interesting, that first case was solved about 20 years later. It took about 20 years, but the, but the uh, Hopewell, Hopewell Township police never gave up on that case and they wound up making an identification. It took over 20 years to do it, but uh, they finally did it. Now, at the time, you said he heard something on the radio. So obviously, uh, these ones were where things were found, either floating in rivers or or whatever, uh, you know, makes the news. Did, I guess there must have been enough time, like you say, or it's New York, New Jersey. You know, it's like so all over the place. This did did this uh, become evil serial killer ever become evil serial killer in New York on the New York Post? And no. Never once during jo Joel Rifkin's four-year reign of terror was he on the radar of any law enforcement people or was there even a thought that there was a serial killer on the loose. You got to realize of, the, of his 17 victims, I think six or seven of them were never even reported missing by their family members. Two or three of them have never even been found to this day. Um, but this is back before, you know, New York was a completely lawless city back in the late 80s and early 90s. Plus, there was no communication between the boroughs. So if a, if a body part was found in the Bronx, but that body part might have belonged to somebody that was killed in Brooklyn, there was absolutely no... Um, uh, connection between the two, even though it's the same city and the same police department. It wasn't until the late 90s that there's like a computerized system where everything is kind of linked together. So it was very, very easy to, um, 
to get away with crimes back then. There were no cameras around like there is today. Um, and if you, if you spread things out over different boroughs, it was not unusual to be able to uh, get away with things for a long time. Now, again, the, the series of, of uh, killings that he's doing are uh, not all the same place. He, some he's doing things, uh, picking up and, and doing sex in a car, in his mother's car sometimes. He's doing it. There's one interesting, I do want to talk about the hotel or motel where that happens there. And he's doing a lot in his own home. Joel used to do it, and he goes into great detail about how he used to love to, uh, he would leave Long Island, and then he would go to head to Brooklyn, and he would drive, he, the, the area where, where prostitutes frequent is called a stroll. So Joel used to love to start out in Brooklyn and just drive around in circles um, to that stroll. Then he would head to Lower Manhattan. Then he would head to Northern Manhattan, then Queens, sometimes the Bronx. And he liked to look and shop and be sort of, he kind of viewed himself as, as the discerning consumer. Uh, when, his, when his mother was away, which, and she did take a lot of trips, probably to get away from him, because, you know, he was, she was in the house with him alone. And um, he was kind of a hermit, you know, he was, he would spend all of his time in the room, even though they had a very good relationship when they were, when he was a kid and they shared hobbies like photography and gardening. As an adult, he became kind of a curmudgeonly, you know, hermit. Uh, and the mother was widowed and she liked to go on weekend trips and four day trips. So Joel initially felt comfortable bringing these women home from, from uh, Manhattan, usually from Manhattan. Uh, in fact, his second victim, he brought in, he brought home to Long Island from Manhattan. And this is another case where, you know, Joel doesn't take complete responsibility for what happened. She stayed the night, he plied her with drugs. Uh, she wanted more money in the morning. So they went to an ATM machine and the, the ATM, the bank was not yet open for the ATM machine. This is, you gotta remember, this is 30 years ago. So they would have had to come back at nine o'clock. So they went back home and then they were going to go back to the bank at nine o'clock. The woman was whining and complaining and Joel just snapped and killed her. I, uh, I don't recall exactly how he killed her. I think he beat her over the head, but, and this was a year after the first victim. And once again, Joel said, if the ATM had been open, she would be alive today. So he was kind of skirting responsibility for that one as well. Once he did that second murder, uh, he got a lot more comfortable uh, doing it and it, it took him a few more months, but then he went into what he called his accelerated phase where he killed like four or five of them in pretty rapid succession. And he was mostly picking them up in Manhattan uh, chopping them up, dumping them in waterways around the city. Um, one of them, I think he dumped out in, in the uh, Pine Barrens out in Suffolk County near the Hamptons. So he, um, he got very comfortable with it. There was one, <clears throat> again, these are the list I have here, Ooh, the, 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 um, where 
one was uh, his only one that, according to, to, to his report to you, the only one he actually tried to bury. It was at the Pine Barrens or somewhere else in New Jersey where he buried. Sometime uh, later, hikers uh, came across the, the shallow grave and what draw them, drew them to it was um, the victim's uh, arm sticking up straight up out of, of the grave. That was in Eastern Long Island. He started to dig a hole and then he, you know, he's, he's kind of impatient. He doesn't have the greatest attention span. And plus it's physically exert a lot of exertion to dig a hole. So he gave up on the hole, threw the body in, figured it was good enough. And within a week or two, some people on a um, excursion saw the hand sticking up out of the, out of the dirt. And then now here, the Pine Barrens of the Hamptons is a hundred miles from New York City. So nobody, you know, made that connection that this could be the same, the same guy and who, where the head was found in New Jersey and there were some other limbs found here and there. So there was absolutely never on anybody's radar that there was a serial killer on the loose. Well, that's why, because what's interesting, I mean, like, you know, Ten Buddy did a little traveling. I mean, you know, he moved around a little bit and from state to state. But when you're talking about New York City itself, it's like six states. So as you said, something that happens up in the Bronx or down in Brooklyn or Queens, then you get into New Jersey and Long Island, there really isn't a big, you know, an, an in that time to connect. But, but Jim, not only that, um, you have to remember back then in, in, in the city of New York, there were 2,500 murders a year. It's two, I'm, not, that's not a, I'm not misspeaking. 2,500. It was a completely lawless city uh, until the mid-90s. So there really wasn't a lot of time to, uh, to spend on these homicides. You know, you would, you would start working on one. I know when I worked in, in the Brooklyn detective squad in the early 90s, we had a mob war going on there. The Colombo mob war was going on. And we had, you know, just the, the, also the run of the mill murders. You, you would literally go to work and wait for a body to drop. As you point out in your book, um, Joel had uh, some imaginative ways of uh, disposing of bodies and body parts, including um, the use uh, of cement. Yeah, one of one of Joel's uh, uh, techniques for for getting rid of bodies was he would put body individual body parts in concrete in cement, and then he would uh, bag them or some of them he actually put into 50 gallon drums and threw in the water. And because they were weighed down, they would go to the bottom uh, of the, like the Gowanus Canal. Some of these bodies have yet to be found. Uh, I think there's four women who have yet to be found. Um, and Joel knows exactly where he dumped them, you know, but the currents could have taken them out to sea. But he also would drive around with these body parts in cement in big hef, hef, heavy duty plastic bags. And he, even though he was going from Long Island to New York City to dump them in waterways or woods, he couldn't resist. He couldn't drive near a stroll without strolling around. So very often he would drive around with these body parts in the car while he gawked at the merchandise on the street. 
In one case, it was towards the end of his reign, Joel was having sex with a woman in the, uh, the old New York Post parking lot uh, along the FDR Drive, which is unfortunately no longer there. It was a great old, old-fashioned building. And a Asian man came into the parking lot, and it's right near Chinatown, and just started doing Tai Chi right outside the car. And Joel had mounted this woman. He had his knee in her chest. He was choking her while this man was within feet of the car. And he said by that point, he was calm and cool. He didn't panic. And um, he was able to finish the job. And then I believe that that woman, he, propped, he, he got a little spooked about dumping her because it was daylight by now. So he was going to bring her to, to his Long Island home, put her in the shed temporarily, and then figure out what to do with the body. So he propped her up in the car and actually stopped for gas with her propped up in the, um, in the car. And he didn't, he didn't seem to get any kind of ghoulish delight out of telling those stories. You know, I was kind of looking for like a sort of like a sadistic glint or something when he would tell these stories. But everything was just told, you know, completely matter of factly. And and oddly, too, I'm mean, not oddly. Everything about this is odd. But he was very insistent with you, with uh, psychiatrists, that he was not a necrophiliac. Yeah. Now, that the only re- the reason why I find that a little suspicious is I pushed him on that because um, the fact that he kept some of these bodies around for a while, you know, would, would lead somebody to think he was a necrophiliac or at least experimented with necrophilia. And that was probably the only thing when I pushed that he pushed back um, and got a little aggressive. And he didn't necessarily get aggressive with me pushing back. But what he got aggressive with was explaining that the psychiatrists that gave that diagnosis uh, were wrong and that they were just out to get him. But he got very aggressive in defending himself against those accusations, which leads me to believe that, that they might be true. As, as Shakespeare said, you doth protest too much. T- tell us about the, uh, the woman he uh, took to a motel. Yeah, there was a, another woman that he, um, he took to a motel on Long Island. And you got to remember, one, one thing that Joel is very open about, which I have a begrudging degree of admiration for him, just uh, because this is certainly not flattering to him, um, but he was willing to admit things such as he would purposely look for the weakest, most fragile looking uh, prostitute on the street because he didn't want any type of physical um, opposition. And, you know, he's basically a coward at heart. He, um, he wanted somebody that he could very easily overpower. So he finds this waif-like girl on Long Island, takes her to a local uh, hot sheets motel in Nassau County, and she starts lamenting about her life. And she says, you know, sometimes I just wish I was dead. Joel says, do you want to die? Uh, I guess, you know, she's, she's drug addled. She's, she's beside herself. She answers somehow in the affirmative. I don't remember the exact wording. 
and Joel, in his mind, obliged her and just choked her and, and, and said she put up absolutely no resistance whatsoever. He just, so, and he, he, so now, he kept his eyes open. He looked at her while he was doing it, and she never put up any resistance at all. And, and so now he's in a motel. Now, again, like I said, it's, you know, everyone looks the other way, whatever, but it's now daytime uh, or, you know, dawn, whatever. And he's got a body and, and someone, and there's cameras around and he's had to show his license to get the room. Yeah. So he's now being identified as the person in room 1A. Um, I forget how he gets out with the body. What he did, what he did in that case was he uh, left the room by himself and he went to whatever the 1990 version of Home Depot was. And uh, he bought himself a, um, one of those big uh, suitcases, the um, uh, steamer trunks. And he bought himself a steamer trunk. He furtively came back. He looked to see if the clerk was you know, sitting by the window. He wasn't. He took the steamer trunk in, put the, you know, somehow got the body in there. And then, you know, slinked it out into his car where he where he was able to drop it off. So he really was kind of calm and cool towards the end, you know, or, or actually in the middle. He he got very good at this. And he he says, you know, this was the really the only thing I was ever really good at in my life. And um, another uh, sort of sticky wicket uh, disposal after the motel incident was um, at a spot uh, which was near a, uh, you know, an, an auto salvage yard where he was actually confronted by New York's finest, wasn't he? He killed a woman on the, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and he took her body up the FDR Drive, which becomes the Harlem River Drive, which goes up to the George Washington Bridge. So it's like a world apart from the Lower East Side. He pulls over. He drags this body onto like a cliff uh, and throws her into the East River. As he's coming back uh, to his car, trudging through the, through the woods, he sees some cops with flashlights. They thought that he was auto, that he was uh, auto stripping or something. And Joel, you know, very quickly, very quick on his feet, um, before the cops could say anything to him, he says, I know you think I'm auto stripping, but I'm just salvaging because I'm looking for salvage parts. I'm not stripping them from a car and that's not illegal. So he was smart enough to sort of, you know, put them on guard and they wound up, they, I guess they didn't hear the splash and they let him go. His very last victim was in the shed and like his bedroom, which was a mess, the mother and sister were not allowed in the shed. They weren't allowed to go anywhere, you know, where he had his private things. Um, and he was working on his car at the time or on his pickup truck. There was some type of malfunction. So the body, he didn't have a way to dispose of the body. Um, and it was started to, it was in the summer and it started to smell very badly and he knew he had to get it out of there. So he, did some type of jerry-rigged, you know, a repair job on his pickup truck, threw the body in the back of that truck and was going to dispose it. And he made a couple of mistakes. Number one, the headlight, it was at night and the headlight wasn't, uh, or the taillight wasn't working. Number two, 
he drove a commercial vehicle on the Northern State Parkway where commercial traffic is not allowed. Um, and plus the truck was in, in very bad shape. It would have drawn attention, you know, even if the lights were working. So some people would argue that he wanted to get caught. I don't think he wanted to get caught at all. I think he just, um, the, the smell became overwhelming. He knew that it was going to create a problem with his family. So he just, without thinking it through, he just said, let me get rid of this. And, um, and that's how he wound up getting caught. So he's on the he's on the road, and the um, <clears throat> I think also you mentioned that one of the plates was missing. So yeah, there was a plate you know, missing. There was a tail light missing. So it got the attention of the of the uh, also even though it's nighttime, maybe you give a little slack on nighttime. But I lived in on Long Island. I know where you can. Uh, I only drove uh, like a van a couple of times, and you there's road you know there's uh, parkways you can't go. Any parkway we have them here in Rhode Island too. You can't go on, and so they obviously it 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 um, instituted a chase. It instituted a chase, and it was probably about a half hour chase, which is a long in the police world. That's a very long chase, and it ended with him crashing into a pole right by the Nassau County Courthouse. He was totally uninjured, but when he got out of the vehicle and was placed under arrest, the police, um, you know, smelled this body in the back, and um, Joel, you know, pretty much fessed up right away, didn't deny anything, and um, before you know it, he was confessing to 17, or to a total of 17 murders. Now, at that point, obviously, then, <laughs> maybe not immediately, but pretty soon thereafter, it makes the press. And tell us where, when you first saw, whether it was it a news, uh, uh, TV news or, or paper news, or even through your own uh, 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 department, that th I, this was oh, the oh, my God moment. Right. I, was, I had heard about the crime. It was on all the news channels but they didn't identify him at first. They just said a serial killer from Nassau County, however old he was, but they never gave his name. Probably, uh, well, there's reasons for that, which I, I don't want to go into, but somebody could call up and say they're his lawyer, even if they don't know him. And then, you know, all the questioning would stop. So there's reasons for not giving a name publicly immediately upon arrest. But I was driving, I was actually driving on a Long Island roadway. I was living in the city, but I was going to a, a promotion class to, to take the sergeant's test. So I think I was, it was a, a, a class, like a three-hour class on Long Island. And I was driving there, and um, I heard on the radio, Joel Rifkin, uh, 29 years old, East Meadow, <laughs> was was arrested, was, was being, finally being identified as a serial killer. They were calling him the Ripper and all these other names. And I remember taking like a big, I, I felt like the breath, you know, like, like I was punching the stomach. And it sounds hyperbolic when, I, when I'm about to tell you, but I, I literally had to pull over and I just had to catch my breath because I was in complete and absolute shock. 
because uh, like I said, even up until that point, I, he would always, he would cross my mind, maybe not all the time, but on a regular basis where I would think he was out there doing all these exciting things and I surrendered to civil service and was leading a boring existence. And um, we can talk a little bit about the trial. It, it sort of went the way as most people would think, although there was some interesting, it's in the book and I hope people will pick up the Joel Rifkin story from the mouth of the monster um, because the details of it, they're, they're not in the weeds, but they give you a good picture. He did a lot of messing around with attorneys. There was, if you're interested in law, there was, as you said, with questioning, he tried and his attorneys tried to throw out uh, confessions, whatever, because, you know, it's always iffy about the, you know, Miranda rights and so forth. So he tried that, that to no avail. They also um, did not want, was it they didn't want to, the one day didn't want to consolidate, I think, because if, if he got, yeah, I think it was, they didn't want to consolidate because if he was um, the one that they had the body for, if he was acquitted or even found on a right. certain, then they couldn't do the rest of them. Yes. If, if, so they so wanted all, all the jerks. There's all, there's all sorts of strategy involved. Um, it's not as easy as one thinks because had they charged him with one um, and say he got acquitted for that one, it could hurt, you know, all of the other cases. So, um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, legal shenanigans going on. Um, there were there were dueling shrinks, of course. Park Dietz, yeah. who was a famous shrink, uh, did Dahmer, uh, also did uh, for the New York folks, Shawcross, which I was living in Rochester during right. Shawcross. Um, and Dietz, Dietz never goes for the defense. He's not known for doing anything for the defense. But there's another woman, Dorothy Otnow Lewis who worked on Joel's behalf. And she's actually did a, um, an HBO special about six or seven months ago, where she talks about mental illness and what makes people commit such heinous crimes. And, um, and she offers the complete opposite perspective of a Park Dietz, who just kind of says everybody's evil and they're, and they're monsters and they need to be locked away forever. And they're un, unworthy of, of getting any type of help. Well, in the book, which I don't think you set out to do, but with the dueling shrinks is a discussion that I have with myself and, and authors when we do these cases from Ted Bundy to, to uh, uh, people like this, that um, the concept of nature nurture. Uh, again, in the book, we have, you know, all about the, the, you know, things we haven't touched, but they're in the book that he was uh, adopted and, uh, you know, the, uh, no indication of abuse, sexual or otherwise in his home. But it's like, you know, if you hit your head, is that what's doing it? So the nature nurture, it, it will never be uh, solved. But that was, you know, really <clears throat> certainly interesting in the book and to, to as you say, with the two dueling uh, shrinks. The issue, of course, was that that was his only defense. I mean, clearly he couldn't say it wasn't me or, you know, you've tainted the evidence or once the confessions weren't uh, thrown out by any of the judges. I mean, he was cooked except proving he was crazy. And, to, you know, we all know uh, that it ended up he wasn't. He was convicted and sentenced to a thousand years. I mean, they couldn't, there was no death penalty at that point. 
Um, and uh, so he, except the guy, uh, again, I'll put this in a narration. I love the Long Island Railroad shooter connection to what, you know, the, the death penalty. I think Pataki put it back in sort of for certain things, right. but it wouldn't, obviously you can't retroactively uh, put him. So let's, cause I know our time is limited and, but let me talk, uh, let me just get your thoughts on obviously along the line, how many years after it all resolves, did you begin, did you begin contact during the trial or did you wait until after the, yeah, Joel, he was arrested, I believe, in 92. By 90, I think he went upstate in 95. All of his trials and hearings were over by 95. He went upstate to Attica, which is a, a very secure draconian prison in upstate New York, maximum security. And then around 98, what, what attracted me um, to write to him was I saw him being interviewed on TV by Geraldo Rivera. And Geraldo asked him if uh, he had any empathy or any sympathy for the, all, the, all the poor victims that he killed. And Joel said, Joel was pitching this 25-page um, manifesto called Aloha House. I think Aloha in Hebrew means um, uh, sanctuary. So he was talking about how he had written this, this, uh, this manifesto. And it was about how women on the street can protect themselves from people like him. So it sounded like if you took it at face value, he was trying to you know, do something good. So at that point, Geraldo uh, asked him if he had any uh, sympathy for the people that he hurt and killed. And he said he didn't, but he wanted to, but he couldn't. And that bothered him, the fact that he was unable to feel any sympathy or empathy. And then rather than pursue that line of questioning, Geraldo said something to the effect of, um, I'd like to come over the table and you know, be, beat you up you know, or choke you just like you did to those women. But that was what really piqued my interest. And the fact that this nice guy, this kind of doofy, goofy guy that I knew couldn't feel after, after sitting in jail for five years, um, knowing he committed, he wreaked so much havoc on the world the fact that he could admit that he couldn't feel any sympathy or empathy, that piqued my interest more than anything. And I think I wrote a letter to him the very next day, which wasn't answered. Um, but then I wrote another letter, maybe a month or two later, and that one was answered. And that began a pretty fluid correspondence. So you had correspondence, but then- I was visiting, visiting him in Attica, and then also in Clinton, where he got moved, he had actually sued because he was in um, he was in solitary in Clinton for five years, and he said it was cruel and unusual. And Clinton uh, Clinton Prison, another maximum security, but on the other end of the state, they had um, like a secure facility for people, high profile people like him, sex offenders and killers like him, and he wanted to go there, and he finally got his way, and he's been there ever since. And you visited uh, with him in addition to the to the to the letter, the correspondence you visited. Oh, yeah, I visited with him in Attica, I think, two or three times. And then I visited him in um, in Clinton, uh, you know, four or five times. And I um, I had done articles for a magazine called Gallery, which is no longer in existence, and another magazine called Details. And it was actually the details article 
that got me the uh, book deal. I, I didn't even have to do a proposal. I just we sent them. I sent them the details article and. and do you do you know if he's read the book? Uh, I had sent him the book, and he told me that um, he was reading it, but he um, he stopped reading it because he said that you know there were he said it was too. Um, he, he didn't say it wasn't true. He he just said it was too uh, um, difficult for him to read and remember all those things. But my guess is he probably at, at some point, one point or another, he probably read it. Okay. One of the times when I visited Joel in um, Attica, he was in the special the special housing unit up there as well, protective custody, and um, I saw a uh, outside the door while we were talking. I saw a familiar face and I looked over and it was Mark Chapman or Mark David Chapman. He was mopping the floor. And I said to Joel, is that, that that's Chapman, isn't he? He goes, oh yeah, that's Mark. You know, very, very casual. We have covered a lot of the book, but uh, what I like, it's through your eyes. It's still a, a book worth uh, uh, reading. I hope I've piqued the interest of my audience. The book is the Joel Rifkin story from the mouth of the monster by Robert Mladnich. And uh, tell my audience, do you have a website? Do you have a place where they can drop you a line? I forget if I got you on Facebook or that's where I usually get people. But Yeah, Facebook. Um, I, I, Robert Mladnich, it's Robert, M-L-A-D-I-N-I-C-H um, at gmail.com. Great. Um, and so they can, again, like I said, the book is available. I got mine as a... Uh, Kindle Nook, so I could read it quickly. But uh, you know, at all your bookstores and probably in a couple of libraries. It's actually been it's it's out of print now, but it oh, is yeah. on. It's still on Kindle. Well, it came but, out. Yeah, that's where I got Kindle. I got I, Kindle. I still get um, I still get my little residuals from Kindle. Excellent. So people are still reading it. Um, I so again, I want to thank Robert, and I want to uh, I hope my audience enjoyed today's broadcast, and we'll see you again. Thank you, Robert. Sounds great, Jim. Thank you so much. Be well. And of course, I'd like to thank you, my listeners today. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of Murder Most Foul and that you will tell your friends. More information uh, and links to the podcast can be found on the website, which is www foul all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. You can also link to my email there, or you can send me an email direct. And again, that is murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, 2021. Murdermostfoul, 2021, all mushed together at gmail.com. And until we meet again, please take care. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.